I was uh, taking my, my classes on, on preaching or in all the books that I've read on, on writing a sermon, uh, there's, there's this big emphasis that's placed on the introduction. That's a really important part. Uh, I need to uh, capture attention, maybe show a little bit of pastoral care with it, maybe say something funny to, to ease us in a little bit, and, and definitely with the topic, try to get something that, uh, that directs us to it, that we can ease our way into the topic topic a little bit. Uh, The book of Hebrews was obviously not in any of those classes. Whoever wrote it did not do anything along those lines. Uh, So you get some really delicate and intricately woven topics right off the hop. Uh, And not just that, but there's some words that I call baggage words, where we might read them and have some idea of what that word means, but that might not be what the author means. And so we have to work through that a little bit. And then the ultimate no-no, the author of Hebrews tells us exactly what the entire thing is about right from the beginning. The book of Hebrews is about how Jesus is greater than anything else that we would put in our life as our source, as our purpose, as what we're following after. And the reason why we want to spend 16 weeks on this book, knowing from the very first lines what it's about, is because of how beautifully it teaches us that, how thoroughly it teaches us about how Christ is greater, and because, knowingly or not, we constantly try to put something else as our source, as our purpose, as our identity. And so we all need this reminder that Jesus is greater. And if we're going to be in this book together, it's it's important from the very beginning that we talk through some of the background material. So Tim read uh, the first four verses of Hebrews uh, just, just a couple minutes ago. And what do you notice is different? What uh, is missing from this section that we find in other letters or other books of the New Testament in particular? What's missing there? Yeah, greetings is a big part of it. Uh, so there's no mention of who the author is in this. Normally we get uh, I, Paul, uh, a servant of God, or Peter, an apostle of Jesus. But this actually gets us to a, a deeper point that we actually don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. People have guesses. Quite famously, people have guesses about who wrote it. Uh, And it's actually made some people really uncomfortable throughout church history of not knowing who wrote this book. I think it's, it's good and it will be exciting and we can have fun debates over it, but this is one of those debates that we hold loosely of who wrote Hebrews because it's not as significant. What's greater in significance is the fact that this book was used from the very beginning of the church. The earliest Christians were using this book like they used the rest of the New Testament and only how they used the rest of the New Testament. And so we can also see that what is taught in this book is, is taught elsewhere within the Bible as well. And so while we don't know who wrote it, we can find confidence in the fact that uh, we can trust what it says is true and that God has used it and will continue to use it to teach and guide his people. Uh, The other part that's missing in this is it doesn't say anything about who it was written to uh, originally. So you go to the book of Romans, who is that written to? People in Rome, exactly right. Uh, The book of Galatians is written to whom? Perfect. Uh, I was trying to think if there's a trick question there, but uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. Uh, 
Jude? Yeah, who is Jude written to? That could be a trick one. Jude's the author of that one. So uh, in, in all these letters, though, we find some sort of indicator about who the attended original audience was. We could still benefit from it being so far removed from that original audience, but it's helpful to know what was going on in that situation to, to get to learn better from the book. Nothing is said about who this is for originally. We can make some guesses. The language is very sophisticated, and so uh, maybe they had some sort of background in, in the Greek culture of the time. Uh, there's also approximately 7,943 Old Testament quotations in this book. I might be a little bit off with that number, but I think I'm somewhat close with it. There's a lot of them. And so if it's quoting from the Old Testament so much, that probably teaches us that it was someone familiar with Jewish culture, right? Uh, some random... Greek person probably doesn't know a lot about the Old Testament. And then as we read through, we can see some sort of indicators of what was going on in the lives of these people. There seems to be some sort of trial or persecution that's going on that's making them tempted to go back to what their lives were like before. But we don't fully know who it was written to. And then you get the uniqueness of the book of Hebrews. There's no greetings or anything like that, so it doesn't really look like a letter. But it does, in like chapter 13, have some greetings there. And so maybe it is sort of like a letter, but it doesn't totally fit. Other books, like you read the book of Romans, and it feels like a letter that would have been written at the time. You read any of the Gospels, they feel like biographical works that were written at the time. But Hebrews is different. Part of it's a letter, but the rest of it's almost like a sermon. It's about life change, about devotion, about following Jesus more. And so because it's so different, we want to read it different. Uh, you might notice that we didn't pass out the uh, scripture journals for this series like we have in uh, our Mark It Up in First Thessalonians. And, and the reason for that is we want to read this differently. Thessalonians is a letter, so we want to go line by line trying to figure this out. This is more of like a sermon, and you don't fully want to go line by line in a sermon. Think about it in what I'm doing up here, not as though this is worthy of study like Hebrews is, but if you are just grabbing one line of what I'm saying in here, uh, it might not make sense. I had this whole random tangent about Jude a second ago, and if you just grab that, you want to get any part of the argument of what I'm saying. And so you probably want to grab three or five minute chunks to understand what the argument is. The same is true with the book of Hebrews. You want to grab it in a section to understand fully what the argument is going on, uh, where the lines can help us get there. But the bigger part is, what is the argument that's being made? So we read it a little bit differently. The other reason why we didn't give out those journals is, like I said, 7,943 approximate Old Testament quotations. So we're going to need the 65 other books of the Bible regularly. Uh, so if we just had the scripture journal, we'd be missing out on that. So with all that as background knowledge, and I really hope you're still sticking with me, do you guys want to hop into the first couple of verses of Hebrews? Perfect. Let me read for us uh, verses one through four. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophet. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and having become much, uh, uh, as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. 
So the book of Hebrews is all about how Jesus is greater than anything else that we might place in our lives. And you start to see some of that language here in these first couple of verses. He is more excellent, more superior. This idea comes throughout this letter slash sermon. And the first of these greater thans that we come to is in this section. Jesus is a greater message. God has spoken through a variety of means throughout uh, the history of mankind, and now he is speaking through his son. The God of the universe wants to be known by his people. The God who created everything wants to be known by his creation. He doesn't leave us to try to guess at what he is like. He doesn't uh, have us fend for ourselves, but instead God speaks to his people. And we see some of this comparison in uh, these first couple verses of how Jesus is a greater message. God has been speaking, and he's spoken a variety of ways. As you read through the Old Testament, you come across these. He speaks through commands, through uh, dreams, through prophets, through uh, a still small voice. He speaks through donkeys at times. So God speaks through a variety of ways, but now he speaks through his son. And the message that he gives through his son is greater. I love the way uh, one of the commentators that I read talked about it. Um, uh, His name is George Guthrie. He says, God has something to say to the church. And that message focuses preeminently in the person and work of the exalted son. God is speaking to his people still. And he's primarily doing it through the greater message that is Jesus. Well, why is Jesus a greater message? Why is the way that God is speaking to his people greater than how he has spoken to them before? Oh, I think our passage tells us this. Jesus is a greater message because he has a greater nature, he has greater works, and he has a greater status. Did you get those? Jesus is a greater message. The way that God speaks now to his people is greater because Jesus has a greater nature, works, and status. We'll take those three in turn, and we'll start with the fact that Jesus has a greater nature. And to see this, we'll look at the first half of uh, verse 3. It says this, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So Jesus has a greater nature, and it says here that he is the radiance of God's glory, And he is the exact imprint of God's nature. So the radiance aspect, this has, uh, it brings to mind this concept of light, this intense light. Let me try to explain what I mean. Uh, Has anyone ever gone to an afternoon movie at a theater before? So a couple people are willing to admit it. So I love afternoon theaters. First off, you pay less, and that's always going to be good. But, but it's also fun to just kind of be in there when the theater's a little bit less em- empty, uh, a little bit more empty, uh, a little bit more personal of a viewing experience. And so you're in there, and uh, you're just sitting there. Nothing else exists in the world. You're caught in the drama of the, the film that you're watching, uh, and you're just sitting there in the darkness of the theater experiencing this, uh, hopefully, incredible movie that you're seeing. And the movie ends, and so you decide decide to exit it. And rather than going through the whole lobby, you see there's an exit right from this theater that you in. And so you walk outside, and wham, you get hit by a truck. But then you think, and you have time to process, and, and you're realizing you weren't hit by a truck. 
It's just the intense brightness of the afternoon sun in comparison to the darkness of where you were before. It just so impacts you. It hits you so hard and so forcefully that it almost takes your breath away, causes you to squint, not expecting it at all, like you've just woken up on some foreign planet. That's the idea of what's happening here. Jesus is the radiance, the truck-hitting brightness of God's glory. God is, so glo- God is so much glory, his goodness, his majesty. It astounds us so much, and Jesus radiates that glory. Sunglasses are of no use in this situation because God's glory is so great, and Jesus does a perfect job of radiating that glory out. He is the very brightness, the extreme brightness of God's glory. But he isn't just doing that. He isn't just radiating God's glory. The passage goes further and says he is the exact imprint of God's nature. So in his nature, he is the imprint of God's nature. Let me try to explain this one as well. And, and I don't know if this will land at all. Uh, Dakota tells me these things still exist, so she's partially to blame if it doesn't. Uh, don't tell her I said that. Uh, she, uh, have you ever used a penny press machine? So the idea is you put some money in a machine, you put a penny in there, and it stretches out the penny, and it actually makes an imprint of some place that you're at. Uh, My siblings and I, these used to be our primary souvenirs when we went to the San Diego Zoo. We'd get a penny press version of koalas or zebras or some other animal. And the idea is that you go and you put your money in and you're going to get the exact imprint of what you can see the picture of up there. There's uh, elongated pennies with koalas on it and you can pick that one and you will get that thing. It stretches out the penny and it puts it in there exactly as you see it on there is how your new penny is going to look. And that's the idea of what's going on in this. Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. So when we see Jesus or when we read about Jesus, we are seeing the very imprint of God's nature in Jesus. And we see that you read throughout the Gospels. Jesus never once says, thus says the Lord. He says what? I say to you. Because he can do this. He is the very imprint of God's nature. So Jesus is a greater message. The way that God speaks now to his people is superior to how he has spoken in the past. It's greater than how he's spoken in the past because Jesus has a greater nature. This message through Jesus is greater because Jesus also has greater works. And as we finish verse 3, we see some of those. It says this, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So what is it that Jesus does? What is it that he has accomplished? Well, first it tells us that Jesus uh, upholds or maintains or uh, has this uh, managerial role over the universe. There is nothing that occurs that is outside of his power. And this ought to give us so much comfort in all the craziness and brokenness of this world. And trust me, we do not need to go far to find it. In all of that, Jesus upholds the universe. There is nothing that falls outside of his command, his authority, and his power. And that ought to give us so much comfort. 
And yet we look around and there's still so much brokenness and so much craziness. And this gets us to another one of Jesus' works, that he has made purification for sins. He and he alone has offered a way for this brokenness that we find in this world to be restored and renewed. And following that, he has been seated at the right hand of God, the position of power and authority and rule. Uh, He has been seated there over this entire world. These last two pieces kind of give us, uh, might recall in us two of the big holidays for the church, Good Friday and Easter. On Good Friday, we celebrate the purification for sins, that Jesus has gone and paid the price that, that should have been ours, that he died so that we can live and so that we can be with this God who loves us and cares for us and speaks to us through his son, Jesus. And then on Easter, we celebrate the fact that he did not remain dead, but he was raised back to life. And following that, he has gone to be seated at the right hand of God. And in so doing, prove to us that he did not stay dead and he had power to, uh, over death. And we can trust in all the promises that has been made. And so because he is seated up in, in the right hand of God, because he's no longer in the tomb, we can trust that what he says will happen will happen. So Jesus is a greater message because of his greater works that he does in maintaining, upholding, being a manager over this universe, that he proves by dying for our sins, that he proves by being seated now at the right hand of the Father. And the final way that Jesus is a greater message is because he has a greater status. So Jesus is a greater message. The way God speaks to us now because he has a greater nature, because of his greater works, and now because he has a greater status. As you think through the Old Testament and you think through all of the people that God spoke through there, he spoke through Moses, who led a people uh, in freedom from slavery to becoming the very start of a nation. He spoke through David, who led that nation later on and and actually led them into time of tremendous prosperity, becoming a, a world power, at least known on the world stage. He spoke through Cyrus, who was uh, the ruler of one of the preeminent empires at the time. And through Cyrus, God actually rescued his people again so they could go back home. And Jesus didn't have anywhere near the political power of any of these figures. And yet he has a status greater than all of them. So which of them has God ever called them heir? Which of them has ever been the creator of all? Which of them has ever been called God's son? Only Jesus has been, so he is of greater status. But the word that I uh, go to uh, more than any other in this is the word all. He created all. He created the world. He is heir of all things. I really like the way uh, uh, Dutch theologian and eventual prime minister Abraham Kuyper puts it, or I used this quote in students last week, and I just described him. Maybe this hits better for you guys as well. Uh, this old dead guy who you probably don't care about. But I love the way that he said it in this quote. He says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Everything within the created order belongs to Jesus by right. Everything that we can see on this planet, every, uh, from the tallest mountain to the deepest valley, from giant planets to the tiny microorganisms, to every creature, to every person, 
all of those are Jesus by right. So as we look at who he is as heir, as creator, as God's son, for whom all things are his, we look at him and we say he has a greater status. God has spoken in many times, in many ways, but now he has spoken through his son, and that message is greater. The way God speaks to his people now is greater because Jesus has a greater nature, greater works, and a greater status. There are two things that I think we can take away from this. Uh, One, I hope, uh, could be a little bit of a word of caution for us, and and the other, uh, see as a bit of encouragement. Let's get the caution out of the way first. So as we read in the way that Jesus is a greater message, the way that God speaks to his people now is greater, as we look at that compared to how God spoke before, if we focus more on contrast than comparison, if we see that these are two mutually exclusive things, if we drive a wedge between how God spoke before and how God speaks now, we're missing it. It's really easy to read the first two verses as long ago, And many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, God spoke to us by His Son. If we place too much of an emphasis on that word, but, if we see that this message that has come now is exclusive, is so much better, if we see that we are doing away with how God has spoken before, then we are getting the wrong emphasis of the text. The message of Jesus is greater because it has become more clear. The message of Jesus is greater because it has fulfilled what God has said before. But look at who is the source of both messages. Who spoke through the prophets? God. Who is speaking now through Jesus? God. And as God is always the same, the message too has always been the same. It has been is and will always be, we are saved by this one same God, by grace in him alone. That has always been the message. And God has revealed himself, and it's never been different in these two sources. And yet we get to this place now to where the message is greater because it has fulfilled what has happened before. It isn't that, uh, that God was lacking. It isn't that he finally got his act together and spoke clearly. It's the message has always been the same. We have a greater way of receiving it now because it's more clear, because it fulfills what has happened before, and it can actually reach more people. The, the recording of Jesus and who he is can go out to the world, whether it's in Asia or in because of Jesus coming, because God's speaking through him, more people can hear this story. So we don't do away with what God has spoken before. I mean, think about it. The God of the universe wants to be known by you. The God who created this beautiful place that we get to live in. The God who created Jupiter The God who created the molecules that make up every blade of grass that we unceremoniously mow down to fit our liking. A God who's in control of that many things, who knows the tiniest details that are insignificant to us but are significant to him, who knows uh, all that is going on in this world, who created everything that we will ever come across, wants to be known by you. Why should we not crave any and all ways that God has spoken to us? This God, why would we not want to hear from him as much as we possibly can? So we do not do away with what God has spoken about before now that we have this greater way to hear from him. 
And the author of Hebrews knows this as well, as will be in our passage next week. There's 10 verses there. Seven of those verses are Old Testament quotations, direct Old Testament quotations. We aren't doing away with what has been said before. And this is important. God has spoken, and we want to go to that. God speaks now now through Jesus. If we think that all we need is to go to the recordings of who Jesus is to know God, we are missing it. Because actually, the best way to know and understand Jesus is to go to our Old Testament. And we'll see that throughout this series. So that's my caution, that we don't drive too much of a wedge between what God has done before and what God is doing now through his Son. But it also comes with a plea. And here's my plea. Please read Hebrews with us. As we're going through this series, please continue to be reading through this book so that we can see what God is speaking through it. But this plea has a second part. It's that as we come to those Old Testament quotations, and again, approximately 7,943 of them, uh, go to where those are in the Old Testament. Flip to them. Uh, Your Bible should have a reference there. If not, online Bibles will, and you could easily do that. Flip through them. Read them in context. Read to understand what they were saying then, how they're being used in Hebrews, and how God is speaking to them now in our lives as well. This will help us understand Hebrews, yes, but it will help us understand this God who wants to be known, who is speaking to us, who has spoken in many times and many ways before. Now he speaks through his son, and we get to know the God of the universe from him speaking to us in that way. I also want to leave with a little bit of encouragement. This series is all about who Jesus is and how he is greater than anything else that we might place into our life. But as we continue to go through this series, we will see Jesus is greater. But we also come to the conclusion, hopefully, that he and he alone is great. Leaders will fail. Politicians will fail. Systems will fail. But Jesus is greater than all else. So he alone is worthy of our trust and our hope. As we go through this series, we will see that Jesus is greater than all things. He has come as a greater priest, offering a greater covenant through a greater sacrifice. And because of that, we can have a great hope and a great endurance all because of who Jesus is. As we focus on who he is and what he has done, we will come away with the realization that he is greater and he is worthy of hope and trust. So as we come to him, we will see that his love is greater than we could possibly imagine. The grace that he pours out on us is all-encompassing of who we are. The, The care that he shows for us is innumerable. And as a result, the hope that we can have from following after him is just outstandingly massive. This is about Jesus, and this is who he is, and his passage shows us that from the very beginning. And I love the way these four verses beautifully show us who this Jesus is. They've had such an impact in my life, and they've had such an impact in the history of the church. There was a uh, creed that was put together at the Council of Nicaea, so they called it the Nicene Creed, and this was uh, done in the year 325. And this kind of functions as a doctrinal statement amongst all Christians. It's if we are holding to this statement, we can trust that we are all landing on the same spot about who Jesus is and what he's done. 
And I love the way that they put this together, uh, this part about Jesus. And, and I just want you to listen to it. I know some of you are already reading it, and that's okay. Uh, I want you to listen to it uh, just to see where do you hear or what similarities are there between what is in this part of the creed and what we read in these first four, four verses of the book of Hebrews. Uh, this is from the Nicene Creed. It says this, We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. What do you see in that part of the creed that we also see in these first four verses? I can't hear you, I'm sorry. Same as the Father, yeah, absolutely. Created all things, yep. Light from light. Yeah, yeah, a lot of similarities here about the Son of God, of what we believe together, coming straight to us from the text. This is our Jesus. And so we want to spend this time, this incredible Jesus that we read about here, we can know and be shaped by him. We can find hope and joy and peace from this Jesus who is greater So I hope in this series, as we're going through it, looking how Jesus is greater than anything else that we would try to put in our life, that it's an encouragement to us to crave and long for and go after this Jesus and know that we can receive him, that God is speaking through him now and this message that is greater. And so we reorient our lives around Jesus alone. One of the things that I I want to give us uh, an opportunity for is as we know this Jesus more, as we recognize how much we have been cared for by him, it leads to us to care for others. As we see how much we are loved by this Jesus, it has us, uh, the only natural response is to love others in return. And we get an opportunity this morning to demonstrate love and care for our neighbors uh, with Woodland Elementary. We believe uh, in partnerships in the community, and we have started this relationship with Wood Glen. Uh, and this past year, we had the opportunity to uh, uh, give them technology in the classroom to help boost morale with staff shirts and lunch. And, and we've created this partnership because they are our nearest school, and we recognize the work that they are doing there is impacting the community that God has placed us in. And so we want to continue to build this relationship. I will be on Wood Glen's campus this upcoming Wednesday. We're going to drop off lunch. We're going to drop off some goodie bags that we have made up with some uh, teacher items in there and then some Wood Glen kind of branded I- items just to try to care for them, to, to love these people who are doing so much in our community. But I want to go a little bit past that as well. One of the great encouragements that, that I've gotten so far in, in the eight months that we've been open uh, is a letter that they wrote Uh, to us as a church uh, in response to us giving them uh, these donations. And and they just had so many notes on there of how much they were appreciative, of how much they cared for us, and, and how much they knew that they were loved by us. And so in turn, I want to be able to have this opportunity to write to them. And we're gonna do that together in this part of the service where we get an opportunity to write and say thank you and to encourage and and just to be so appreciative of the impact that this school has on the community. Now I recognize you won't know who you're writing to. It might go to a principal, it might go to someone on the janitorial team, might go to a third grade teacher. 
And yet all of those people are working. It's impossible to have the impact that they're having on the community without every single one of them. So they're all worthy of our appreciation. They're all worthy of our thanks. I am the husband of a teacher, and I know how thankless this role could be. But I also know how much of an impact a school has, not just on the child, but on a family as a whole. And so we want to take this time to thank them for what they're doing. I know there's a lot of people we could be thanking. And because we're focusing on one group doesn't mean that we aren't appreciative of others. But this is, as school is coming back, with this relationship that we've already formed, we want to, as people who have been so cared for and loved by Jesus, to care and love for others in return. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. They're going to uh, play some music in the background to give us this space to be able to write these letters. Uh, following that, they're going to lead us in uh, one more song, but uh, to, they're going to give us this opportunity to, to get to show why we're grateful, why we're appreciative. And, and we don't need to write anything incredibly detailed, or it doesn't need to be uh, the most profound thing that we've ever penned. Just as we are shaped by people and we want to care for those in return, what are some words that come to mind? How are you appreciative of the school that is laboring to make an impact in the place that God has placed us? doesn't need to be made out to anyone. You don't have to put your name on it if you don't want to. You certainly can if you want. But just what are you grateful for for this, these people who are caring for those in this community?